From the familiar to the taboo and sometimes uncomfortable, join us for thought-provoking tales of period drama, women's health, cultural and societal issues affecting women today and chats with clever gals with Moxie who are killing it in life and business. I'm your host, Mia Klitsis, co-founder and head Moxette at Moxie Products. Yeah, even though we're not we're in different years but we're here together we are and that's the main thing and we can see each other that's something we're on yes. zoom people for those listening we are on zoom at the moment so let's see how this goes hopefully we don't we don't freeze and you know the audio works out okay but yeah at least we can see each other yeah fingers crossed um tell us a little bit about ella um i am a melbourne girl i um have one husband. I have one child. <laughs> just the one. Just the one husband. Just Can't deal with any more than that. Seriously. No. Not yet. Anyway, yeah. I have one child, <laughs> two dogs. Um, I have one excellent job in advertising. Um, I'm an ad tragic. I come from a long line of advertising people in my family, and and it's something that I've been doing for 22 years, and I love it. But in the past few years, I've also branched out into being, um, I was a sick person for a while. I had had a, a touch of cancer. Um, and that's meant that I've also um, added some more strings to my bow. Like um, I'm a over sharer on Instagram and in newspapers and in, in blogs uh, and anyone else that will publish my writing. Have you um, always been, have you uh, always been an over sharer? Um, Always. My, one of my best friends <laughs> said to me about a, a year ago um, as she was watching something ridiculous on Instagram and she said, she, she and I have known each other since we were about four, and she said, you have been Instagramming before Instagram existed. I was like, I know. <laughs> Everyone thinks I'm just doing it for the gram, but this is me. Like, <gasps> like Zuckerberg, Zuckerberg, whoever invented it. He owes you. He, he built you. it. He built it for me. Um, yeah, I've always been an oversharer, and now um, finally the, uh, the the technology has caught up with me. <laughs> Ella's Instagram is um, hilarious. I think I texted you the other day to tell you that I was like ninety six weeks deep into your feed <laughs> and into your stories. Honestly, I like I swear it. I have not laughed out loud so much from watching someone's Aww. stories. Thank um, you. That makes me happy <laughs> oh my god what's the one with um like <laughs> oh well like jude law is your um your like hollywood oh. leaf part no he's my platinum and so there's like my platinum leaf pass my titanium uh, leaf pass. so there's yeah. like just reams of stories of jude law eye candy <laughs> <laughs> well my husband's not very pleased about it um like i think it was a joke and then I took it too far and so it wasn't a joke anymore. And then I took it even further than that. Um, and now it's become a joke again. So I think I did redeem myself recently because I did actually post a video of Jude Law where he genuinely does look quite like my husband, Tom. And oh, wow. I got a lot of um, DMs from women all around the world saying, oh, I genuinely thought that was Tom. And I just showed him all of these messages. And he's, he was a little bit more understanding then about my infatuation with Jude Law. So, yeah, so he's know. probably pretty happy with himself over that. Yeah, 
exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I'd take <laughs> um, so can we can we go back to um can we go back to the big C, the cancer? Yeah. And I say that because um yeah, I've people very close to me have have also suffered that fate and um yeah yeah it's a massive shit show Mm. yeah Um, yeah there's one that i have about talking about cancer and um Mm. you have to get to this room during this podcast Um, i'm down no one's allowed to mention the j word j no one's allowed to talk about journeys oh yeah right okay yeah no No. okay (laughs) you can call it a shit show or a malarkey, yeah. or um, all, right. all sorts of other things. But um, no, yeah. I have I have a virtual journey jar on my um, website, mm. and if any, every time anyone mentions the word journey, they have to donate five dollars to a cancer charity. That's amazing. That's yeah. a great idea. <laughs> yeah, it um, is a shit show. Look, there's no sugarcoating yeah. it. It's just, yeah. it's freaking horrific. It's shit. It is it's terrible. Um, yeah. And I do get lots of messages from um, people who I've not met before um, and they message me and they say, I've just been diagnosed with cancer and, um, you know, we, we often have dialogues and questions and things like that. But, you know, I will, I will inevitably um, open it by saying, I'm really sorry, welcome to the shit show and it's fucking yeah. terrible, but um, it's going to be okay. And I think that, I think yeah. that that's sort of the, 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 a, a good opener say that you know this is the bit where I talk about my bottom and how it tried to kill me um but that is wild oh my god okay before we before we talk about your butt can we just um yeah can we just talk a little bit about I guess how people address cancer how other people talk about it um my husband and my business partner both have had cancer um my business partner still has it and you know, obviously two of the most important people in my life. So I spend, you know, every day with them. And we often talk about how they feel and how other people treat them when they find out they have cancer. I wonder if people sometimes just don't really know what to say or how to say it. So perhaps, you know, share with us, like you said, like you don't appreciate use of the word journey. And I, hey, I, I respect that 150%. Um, but, you know, how how can people be still, you know, sensitive and supportive and empathetic but not be... Not be fucking idiots? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, think, I think that's what like it is. Some, I think some people are just... Some people are morons and they don't realise they're morons, but then I think other people perhaps with all good intention just kind of fuck it up. I think that um, I have I have good faith. I think that ninety nine point nine percent of people mean well, um, mm. but it is um, a very 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 scary subject. And the problem with fear is that it clouds all form of rational thinking. Mm. And I think the reason that people don't want to talk about cancer or any other you know um, potentially terminal illness is that fear, and it's the fear of saying the wrong thing. It's yeah. The- fear um of um getting involved with something that is going to hurt them it's the fear of hurting the person who's sick so there's there's all this fear because it's not it's not a um as just a socially common way to exchange words so people sort of know what to say if you say your grandma's died they go i'm really sorry 
Um, I'm sure she was a wonderful woman. Um, would you like to share a, a memory with me? You know, like there's a couple of just tropes that we can all sort of rely on. There doesn't really yet seem to be a trope or a, um, a hook that we can connect to when someone says I'm sick. And, and, you're, and you're very young too. And that's very confronting. Yes, and also um, I was diagnosed when I was 36 and I was um, just coming to the end of the first term of prep with my first and only kid. So there was a lot of um, women, mothers, that I'd just met within the past sort of six weeks that I had been doing lots of standing around in playgrounds with wearing puffer jackets and talking about TV shows, you know. So yeah. we, we weren't on a deep level but um, we were very much connected. So it's interesting. I think that if I'm being diagnosed a year earlier, it, my social circle um, would have been a lot more, a lot smaller and a lot more intimate. Mm. Whereas because I was diagnosed at that time, there was a lot more, a, lot, a much broader group of people around me that I felt um, that I needed to uh, control my message with. Mm. I mean, how did it all go down? Like, how did you, how did you find out? Um, and can you, and can you talk, tell us about the type of cancer that you have? Yeah, yeah. Um, I am um, what's known as a vindicated hypochondriac. <laughs> I, I come from a long line of um, <laughs> who are sick uh, or have been sick. And therefore, um, I have, I think it's, it is called hypochondria in the 20th century. Now we refer to it as health anxiety. Um, but I basically from the age of 18 had to deal with my own fair share of lumps and bumps that because of my family history and also probably because of my own internal neuroses, I've always been overly vigilant about um, my health. And so that means that I'm on a high screening for breast cancer. I have extra colonoscopies for bowel cancer. You know, there's all this stuff that as a 20 something, 30 something that um, it was relatively unusual for me to be having on a semi-regular basis. So um, when I found a lump on my bikini line in early 2018, so uh, just over two years ago, there was the animal part of my brain that panicked and froze and thought instantly that's where my lymph nodes are. I clearly have lymphoma or some other form of lymphatic cancer. because so you had self-diagnosed already? Totally. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I live on WebMD, Mia, and my poor oh. husband. <laughs> yes, no, that's my, my mother. <laughs> and, you know, like I, I had a really bad anxiety, um, state of anxiety in the early 2000s where I became convinced that I had multiple sclerosis. Mad, totally bonkers. I am a huge, huge advocate for therapy and medication, but that's another conversation. <laughs> um, so I found um, a lump on my bikini line on the left-hand side, and it was literally where, you know, the, the line of my knickers sat. And I was sort of lying in bed one night and I was feeling around and I thought, oh God, that's weird. And the thing that sort of worried me was it wasn't sore and it wasn't mobile. And because I do have a history of breast lumps, which um, have been removed surgically because of my family history, mm. I know that um, good lumps are lumps that move around a lot or are sore. Now I am not obviously a GP and there's lots of um, nasty lumps that move around and aren't sore. But anyway, I, I basically went to the doctor straight away. I went to the GP and I showed her my pea-sized lump on my bikini line and she did just what a GP should do, which is she approached it in a way of um, what is most likely for 90% of 30, healthy 36-year-old women, which is it's probably nothing. 
and she gave me a referral for an ultrasound and said, if it isn't gone in a month, go check it out. Um, now, I probably would have done that, but by pure coincidence, the next day I was seeing my breast surgeon for my biannual MRI results because of my pre-mentioned history of boob lumps. I have MRIs every now and again to check out my boobs. And he was telling me that I was basically being kicked out of boob school and my lumps and bumps were nothing to be worried about and he didn't want to give me any more MRIs and please go away and don't ever come back because you're fine and you're healthy. And you oh, How old at this stage? Like are you like 36? 36. Roughly? Yeah. And so I felt really proud. I mean, not that I had really achieved anything other than not grown some cancer cells in my boobs, but I felt yeah, really nice. An achievement. Yep. Achieved yep. I'm being kicked out of my <laughs> breast surgeon's office and he doesn't want to see me again. Um, Excellent. And so I swung my bag over my shoulder and I stood up and I said goodbye and he's a lovely guy and I gave him a hug because, you know, I just I feel very connected to him. And as I walked out, because um, as you have probably gathered already, I can't let the chance for a joke to pass me by, <laughs> I turned over my shoulder and I said to him, well, I always need something to worry about, so now it's just focusing on that groin lump of mine. And he looked at me and his face changed and he said to me, come back inside. And that's when it all started. He brought me back in and he made me lay on the bed and he felt my groin lump. And the moment that I realised that something wasn't right was he asked me to cough and cough and he asked me to stand up and cough. And I knew what he was doing was he was trying to establish if it was a hernia. And I knew by the amount of coughs he was asking me to give him is that it wasn't moving when it was coughing, which meant it obviously wasn't a hernia. So he took my GP's referral, which was still stuffed in the bottom of my handbag, and he looked at it and he rewrote another one that was a lot more thorough and he asked me to go get an ultrasound that day. And that was the first of a series of, I think I've said it in something I've written before, a slowly collapsing domino tower of conversations where every conversation that you have, you hope it's going to go one way and it goes the other. And that was a bad time. That's very confronting. Um, staring, I guess, just down a well and it's like you're just getting further and further into this bloody well and you're thinking, am I going to come out? Yeah. And that's a really good way of putting it. And I think that there are blind optimists out there who probably would have had that meeting and went, oh, it'll probably be fine. Mm -hmm. And then they had the ultrasound when the technician went over and over that spot, over and over. And I've had a lot of ultrasounds in my time and I knew the difference in that ultrasound technician's face. And I was lying there staring at the pebble dash um, ceiling and I was just crying because I just knew, I knew that it was bad. And, but that was still three days before I received a diagnosis. And whereas other people could have just lain there and gone, yeah, it's probably nothing. It's probably a hernia. Mm. And I don't know whether that um, sense of catastrophizing everything, which is what I do, um, was a good thing or a bad thing. Cause it meant that when I eventually got the meeting with the GP and she said, um, we've detected cancer cells in that lump and we don't know where the cancer is because it's a secondary lump. At that point, I was almost expecting it. So I was ready. 
as I could have ever been. Whereas maybe for some other people, they would have had a lot of an easier run up to that point, but then they would have been absolutely flawed. Mm-mm. And so how did they discover the source of the cancer? Well, this is the really interesting thing, right? And like, were you just like, how the hell? Well, I kept thinking, I've just had a colonoscopy. I had a colonoscopy six months ago. Yeah. So, and I had a pap smear two years ago. So I kept thinking, oh, no, less than that. I was like, it can't be cervical cancer because I've just had a pap smear. It can't be bowel cancer because I've just had a colonoscopy. Mm. It can't be skin cancer because I've had my... Like, I've literally had... I'd done all the things perfectly. So I kept thinking, what the fuck is it? It must like be... process like, of elimination. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, look, there's... in During a process like this, there's half of your brain that, that is howling with fear and wanting to run really far away from... It's, it's very primal. You just want to run and run and run and leave the scary animal that's chasing you behind. But then there's another part of you that is, is genuinely fascinating. And I found mm. myself sitting in um, meetings with specialists thinking, wow, this is so cool. Like they said, okay, your lump is on your left-hand side of your body and cancer tends to only live in one half or the other half before it progresses quite... Um, until it's quite progressed and it also tends to move from the bottom up so they said it's in your left left lymph nodes so it is somewhere between your left toes and your left hip what have i got like knee cancer what the hell um, yeah i was i was really interested by that and so i went to a um first of all i went to a skin cancer doctor and they inspected my because they just assumed that it was um a skin cancer because the cells that they'd found were skin cancer cells. Squamous cell carcinoma means cancer in squamous cells, which is skin cells. Um, and so they looked for a skin cancer and they couldn't find any. And then they sent me to a um, gynecological cancer specialist and she um, basically climbed up into my cervix. I've never had a, um, an examination like that. That was like I reckon she was elbows deep. I was going to say, she would have been right in there by the sounds of it. <laughs> I can't find anything. <laughs> hello, hello, hello. It's um, like, there's nothing here. And I'm going, okay, well, that's good. Um, and then I went back to my boob man of all, of all places. And he said, there's one place. It's like the world's worst Easter egg hunt, right? He's like, look, there's just one thing. And he got me back on his bed and I lay on my side with my knees pulled up to my chin and he stuck his finger up my bum. And it was just a really short little exhalation of breath. And he went, oh, there it is. And it was <gasps> just on the inside of my anus. And I never felt it because I didn't want to. I didn't want to touch my cancer. I thought that was gross. But apparently it was about two centimetres wide. It was quite big. And they were all flawed. They just could not believe that I had anal cancer because it's extremely rare. And um, it's really, really rare for women, particularly under the age of 70. So, yeah, they were amazed. Um, and then they were also like, oh, well, shit, if she's got anal cancer and it's already spread to her lymph nodes, um, that's not good. So um, that's when they referred me straight on to, um, you know, a whole bunch of people who knew what to do with it. But that process between the finding it myself and getting it officially diagnosed through a colonoscopy and a PET scan, which is when they scan your whole body for cancer cells, was only um, about two weeks, which 
is very, very fast. That is such a short window of time and so much to deal with, not only physically, like incredibly invasive tests and being poked and prodded, Mm. but mentally and emotionally. And you have a young child as well. Yeah, I had a six-year-old. Like, this is a lot. In some ways, Mia, I think having um, my daughter around um, meant that Tom and I had to compartmentalise our fear and I actually found that very useful. So, you know, the the day that the GP said it's cancer, um, that was one of the worst days and my mum and stepdad had picked my daughter up from school and they had taken her home to our place and they were basically waiting at home trying to entertain her but also waiting for the phone call. And I texted mum just after we finished and I said, it's bad news, it's cancer, but we don't know anything more. We're coming home. Um, Can you meet me by the front of the house? And so mum and I sat in her car together and that's when I did the full howl. You know, that's when I did the full rocking, screaming, how is this happening? You know, all the things that you can imagine that as a human and as a mother and as a daughter and anything else that you would react to. But then I had to get out of the car and go in and make sausages and mashed potato. And I did that and it was easy to do that because I had to. And it wasn't until we'd put her to bed every night, that's when I would then have my wobble again. And Mm. so it actually, I, I had to go pick her up from school. I had to take her to ballet. I had to do all sorts of things. And so, um, that actually during that entire period of time, which is the worst time, the time between diagnosis and, and treatment is the worst time. I had a very structured approach to my panic and my fear, which was Tom and I did that together at night after 10 o'clock. So it was almost sort of became a routine in a way. Yeah. But a necessary one perhaps. Oh, absolutely. And the Mm -hmm. other thing um, I did want to say, which is I think one of the main reasons how I got through that first period and also the whole entire process with my mental health intact and also probably better than it's ever been before was I had a pre-existing relationship with a psychiatrist Mm. who I met um, when my daughter was six months old and I went to a um, a mother baby clinic um, in Melbourne called Masada, Mm. um, which is known for sort of treating sleep issues, but also it's basically treats um, anxiety in in new mothers. And that's what I was um, experiencing. So I met my psychiatrist there And since then, I've been seeing him on sort of a semi-regular basis. And he knew me well. He knew my husband. He knew my family situation. He was in the same practice where the GP diagnosed me with cancer. I had a pre-existing appointment booked with him on the Thursday, which was the day after I got my diagnosis. Wow. And I took Tom in with me to see him. And the three of us sat there and... There's no way if I hadn't have had that pre-existing relationship that I would have at that point or at any point in the two years after sought out a therapist because there's no way. What are you going to do in the middle of grief and panic and terror? You're going to find a therapist and start telling them about the relationship with your father. Like it's just not going to happen. Yeah. The fact that he was there already and he knew me was a genuine lifesaver. I'm so glad you brought that up. I'm I'm so pleased because I think that's, yeah, I wonder if people will often only kind of seek support when things get really dire Mm -hmm. and 
that even that in itself is very confronting and that process is very confronting like you said you're going through a gamut of emotions and now it's like suddenly i have to find a therapist and find someone i gel with etc maybe maybe it's about you know prevention in a way like it just becomes it becomes part of our self-care routine is to look after our emotional health our mental health and i mean the one that i leave anyone with is um prevention's better than cure you put it um and whatever um works for you and is right for you make sure that your support network is up and running now yeah. Um, not because you're going to get anal cancer at 36. It's extremely unlikely, but, but mm. shit's going to happen. You know, yeah. people leave marriages, jobs get lost, worldwide plagues hit, you know, life yeah. gets really fucking terrible. And if you have got a support network that potentially includes a mental health expert in your arsenal, then um, when the shit hits the fan, you are much better prepped to deal with it. Yeah. That's oh, just, absolutely mission critical message I'm, I'm, yeah thank you for bringing that up i'm really glad you brought that up um can we just can we just talk about at what point did you decide that you were going to overshare <laughs> all of this on instagram but not only share it but share it in the most hilarious possible way i mean of you know obviously that there, there was i mean like i said i've been however many weeks deep into your Insta and your stories. And I, I felt like I was kind of there with you and I felt those emotions obviously to a very tiny extent of what you would have experienced them. But there, there are ups and downs obviously, but you tell it, I feel like I almost feel bad saying hilariously, but you're no, just so don't. funny. And, and one story thread for everyone listening is, um, uh, terrible thoughts a cancer patient should never share with anybody. And I just, I laughed. I honestly laughed so hard at that because, again, my husband and my business partner, we talk about like those things that you talk about in those stories. I'm like, yeah, I've heard that a few times. <laughs> so, you know, at what, yeah, at what point did you say, this is kind of going to, I need I need to do this or I want to do this? Um. I got a really bad combination of self-obsession and self-awareness. <laughs> that's an ex- that sounds like an excellent combo to me. Yeah, it's very dangerous and it, it means that um, I have a series of long-suffering friends and family. Um, I really like <laughs> talking about myself. So, look, I had gone um, in my 20s, quite, quite young, I'd gone through IVF. Uh, Tom and I couldn't have any kids and it was completely... Um, undiagnosed in the fact that they had no idea what was causing our infertility and and they never actually ended up solving it and our daughter was a miracle child and we were actually going through IVF for the second time around when I was diagnosed but what I learned through the IVF process was um, uh, because I started when I was relatively young and therefore I didn't really know how to be open about stuff like that uh, it was very lonely and it was lonely because when things failed, which it did for us, we went through many, many rounds and, and they never worked. I felt like I couldn't get the support that I had needed and I wanted because I hadn't told anyone about it. And I think that that sort of planted a seed in me that almost from the moment of diagnosis, I started to make this decision in my mind that I was going to tell people about this. 
it, it also had a lot to do, and this is when you can see the therapy talking, it has a lot to do with control. So I announced my cancer with a slideshow on Instagram, which is certainly not many people's cup of tea. And I will, <laughs> I will praise that by saying that I did carefully edit the audience to that first. So I, you know, like any white mother um, in middle-class Australia, I had, you know, the token sort of 400 followers and they were all varying degrees of sort of friends and colleagues and people from school and stuff. And I, I certainly didn't share it with all of them. I, I sort of created, I think, probably a group of 40 trusted people that I wanted to know, but I didn't want to tell individually. And they're, they're, those are the people that I, that I shared that news with. And I did it because I didn't want to have to have that conversation 40 times. Mm. Also, at the very training, like like reliving it over and over and over. Very traumatic because a lot of people cry. And I was going to say, dealing with other people's emotions, it's like, mate, I've got my own to deal with. I don't need yours too. (laughs) And what I actually did, and it sort of goes back to the whole prep playground thing, was I knew that the next day I would have to put my puffer jacket on and go back out and pick my daughter up from the playground. And that's why I actually said in the in the slideshow of, hey, I've got cancer, this is a thing. And I literally did like a little mini Q&A where I asked the questions and also gave the answers. Mm. And one of the questions I put forward that I know everyone would ask is what can we do? I sort of said, I don't really know because I've never done this before, but what I will ask you is if you see me in the street or in the playground or in your instant story, please put away your pity eyes. I don't need them. Um, I just need profanity and jokes um, and I think I also said photos of Jude Law. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so the reason I decided or, or, to... Or like the actual Jude Law would be great. Um, I tried. I've tried for two years. Oh. I mean, I've never given up. Never say never. Never, never say never. never. If you're listening, Jude, <laughs> <laughs> or any of Jude's kids or wives or girlfriends. <laughs> There's many of them. Um, I think I think that's the reason I initially started to share it was it was control I was controlling my message I mean you can you can um hear the the advertising communication woman in me I was I was putting um the news out there but I was also putting out there what I wanted back from people but that's that's got to be incredibly powerful too you know like to to just grab it by the horns and go you know what screw this this is my thing and I'm gonna I'm like I'm in control now. So, I mean, did that, that would have, you know, like that, that would give you a sense of control and, and, um, you know, did that help? Was that kind of a coping mechanism for you in a way? Like everyone obviously copes with things differently and processes differently. Totally. The, I think the coping thing was sort of twofold. First half of it is control and it is controlling the message and telling people what I wanted from them. Um, after a little while, I decided to take my Instagram off private because it was still private then. It was just sharing oh, right. 40 people, you know, my sort of cancer crew. And then there came a point at which I sort of ripped off the Band-Aid and I took it off private and that was instigated by um, a woman who is one of my deepest um, lady crushes and she's an um, extremely funny, funny um, journo and author in the UK called Esther Corrin. And I had basically fangirl messaged her on Instagram and said, I totally used the cancer card. I mean, I used it <laughs> unapologetically. Like I just whacked her over the head with yeah. mother and I've got cancer. <laughs> and I just said to her, which is true. I was like, look, 
I'm sharing my cancer shit on um, Instagram. I've got a private account. I'm just sharing it with some friends and family. But would you mind following me? Because honestly, just knowing you were there in the audience would just totally like make my day. And bless her. I mean, you know, I, I didn't give her much choice, but she said yes. <laughs> and so she sort of quietly followed around in the background. Um, and that made me feel like a superstar. And then one day she shared my account to all of her followers. Oh my gosh. Wow. But I woke up in the morning with all these follower requests because my account was still on private. And oh. I was like, oh, someone <gasps> hacked my Instagram. <laughs> delete, delete, delete. <gasps> no. Oh my I'm gosh. A fucking idiot, right? And I've got no oh. way to go. And it wasn't, until, it wasn't until about five minutes later and I was like, hold on a minute. And I realised what she'd done. And so I took my Instagram off private and I got um, a lovely sort of broader community. And that really then created a second reason for me to continue to Instagram what was going on, but also to sort of be as open as I could about it. And that ended up being quite funny was, and this is going back to the therapy moment, it was a very, very good shield And frankly, it meant that I went into really terrible situations and scenarios and thought processes slightly removed because rather than walking into the hospital to be admitted for three weeks for pain management as I was nearing the end of my radiation treatment and knowing that things were going to become very, very, very bad from a pain perspective, and I was sitting there in the waiting room and I was really scared and I looked down And sitting all over the table of the coffee table in this waiting room at at the hospital was a series of printed eulogies from dead cancer patients that had stayed in the ward. And I was just watching all these smiling, like, faces looking up at me saying, you know, John Smith, 1946 to 2018. And rather than which is sort of what I wanted to do. I was like, oh, I've got to put this on Instagram. This is fucking <laughs> And that was sort of a good, like every single thing I went through, I just went, how can I make this interesting or educational or funny? And it just distanced me from what I was actually dealing with. Isn't that interesting in that a little, a little switch in our perspective can change how we how we approach things and how we deal with things. Yeah. Cause you're right. You could look at that and it could be like, Oh my gosh, doom and gloom. But you looked at that and went, that is morbid, but also quietly hilarious. Yeah. I need totally. to tell people our own perspective and how we process things is so incredibly powerful. I'm, I'm a little like you <laughs> when you said you're a catastrophizer, I completely relate to that. I totally yeah. relate to that. And I feel like I got that from my mother. And but, I, mean, I got it from my mum too, you know. Yeah. Mum's been through a series of phenomenally terrible shitstorms and mm, it would yeah. make complete sense if she was a bitter, angry human. But instead she is um, very, very funny and quite mad and not, <laughs> at, all, and not at all bitter. So, um, yeah, I think that perspective is a superpower and... Yeah. Uh, that's the one that I choose to, to use. And Instagram just allows me, um, or particularly during that time, allowed me to um, get some good feedback from that perspective and encourage me to keep sharing, which allowed me to um, keep being brave when I didn't really actually feel it very brave. Yeah. Did you cop any flack? Like, did you have people saying to you, oh, my gosh, how can you be, like, this isn't a joke type vibe? Uh, 
not once. Um, I'm sure That's I did. Amazing. Just because, um, you know, I just think I've seen internet trolls. I've experienced them, unfortunately. And, um, you know, people just can be horrible. People yeah. just can be really horrible. Yeah, so I just wondered whether that was a bit triggering for some people. I think, look, I'm, I don't have a huge um, internet following, so that's probably why. It's a very small, small community. It's a micro, micro community. And I think that um, it becomes very obvious very quickly the sort of person I am and where my humour comes from. And I think that quite quickly people will either pick up what I'm putting down or they mm. will just move on. I think where I got the most flack and probably continue to do so are the people who know me in real life and follow me on Instagram. And I'm certain that at the beginning there were a fair few of my acquaintances and maybe even loved ones who behind my back were just going, oh, fucking hell, like this is excruciating. Like even I sometimes look back at posts that I shared and at the time I sort of thought they were just funny and flippant, but I look back now and I'm like, Jesus, that's so inappropriate. Like you're, you're, you're being so raw and so open and so honest. But one of the benefits of being a cancer person is that people have to be nice to you. <laughs> so I think that the first thing is I carefully edited that first group that I came out to. And so they all got it and, and they were very funny and they sent me profanity and pictures of Jude Law. And then as I slowly started to open up um, my exposure and, and, and to strangers, by then I was sort of in treatment. And then I was waiting for my PET scan results. And I was going through a series of um, experiences that, that made me very vulnerable. And also there was always that potential that I might die. And so as people who either did know me or didn't know me um, are continuing to be irritated by um, how much I share on Instagram and the sort of way I share it. Luckily for me, they just say it behind my back and not to my face. <laughs> <laughs> Lord help them if they did. <laughs> I know they um, do. I know, I know that there's a fair few, like, I'm sure there's like a fair few ex-colleagues and maybe even like, I don't know, ex-friends that sort of secretly hate follow. But I don't know, it just spurs me on, Mia. It, it just, it really does. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm that person too. Yeah, I'm just like, oh, you hate it, do you? Poke, mm. poke. But again, yeah. it's, it's, you know, maybe to, maybe to some kind of small extent it is, it is about other people, but this is really all about you. And if this is how you can get through something like this, like seriously, like this is not the time for people to be judging. Because who would have no. thought that at bloody 36 that you'd be bloody dealing with anal cancer? Like yeah. it's just, holy shit. I just, I, I can't even fathom how confronting that would be. And so whatever you need to do to deal, like you do you. you like yeah, power you, to you. And if, and if, if, you know, and if you're not down with that, then, you know, don't follow. But do follow because yeah. Ellen's account is hilarious. And there's great eye candy <laughs> Great, yeah. I get on it. Um, can I just ask you, actually, how was it given that, like, this is because your cancer was in quite an intimate part of the body? Did it affect your menstrual cycle, your periods? Was did you ever experience? Obviously, there was a lot of pain associated with treatment. I can imagine, but did you ever experience any discomfort with your periods, or did your periods stop when you were having treatment? Hello. Oh. Hello. Hi. Hi. Oh. <laughs> I was like, oh, she didn't like that question. 
<laughs> you froze. Well, I think of your question. Um, um, I'm going to answer your question because you asked me about um, impacting my menstrual cycles. Yes. I was thinking about you this morning, Mia, because I yeah. was thinking, isn't it ironic that... Did you get your period? No. Isn't oh. it ironic that a lady boss who has created this extraordinary brand around women's periods is talking to a woman who not only has not had a period in two years, but will not be having her period ever again. Ah, wow. Um, Let's talk about that if you're happy to. Yeah, yeah. I, um, anal cancer is, as I said to someone early on in the process, I want you to approach six strangers today and look them in the eye and say anal. it's a terribly worded cancer the word anal is gross it's grosser than bowel it's grosser than rectum it's certainly grosser than the word breast you know um ironically anal cancer is a cancer that is um a lot less um fast growing and invasive than any of those other cancers that i've just mentioned so you know i take i take the grossness of the word versus the grossness of the actual you know Mm. physiology but one of the things that uh, I was told very early on when I first met my head of radiotherapy, who was the, the guy who basically told us that um, this is what I'm going to do and I'm going to fix you. But I think he said, quote, unquote, you're going to, that's my husband singing, you're going to wish that you never <laughs> met me. And when he said, you're going to wish that you never met me, I a, instantly knew that he was a doctor for me because um, I'd met a previous doctor for another hospital and he'd referred to um, my cervix and, um, you know, the rest of my sort of reproductive um, system as my quote-unquote lady parts. Oh, stop it. No. Oh, God. And that was the point at which, you know, you could see Tom, like, looking at me out of the corner of his eye because I sort of stiffened and I was like, uh, we are living and it is a vagina. I was going to um, say, did you say vagina, vagina, vagina? No, I didn't. <laughs> I, I got the fuck out of there. But then, you know, oh, the, the next day we went and we met with um, with Pat, who who is an extraordinary human being, and I love him dearly. And he also saved my was one of the people that saved my life. But he said to me, um, "You're going to wish that you never met me. I'm going to give you um, the most intensive um, course of radiotherapy that a human being can handle. After this, you're not going to be able to have any more." Um, and there's going to be some really crazy side effects. And the first is you're going to go into menopause. Mm. So uh, do you have any children? And we said, yes, we have one. He said, great, Um, because it's very unlikely that you will ever have um, any children again. We knew really early on um, that I was was it. I was going to um, do do no more perioding and no more baby making. And... uh, Part of me was, um, of course, all of me, it's like if someone comes to you and says, I'm going to save your life, but you're going to have to give up something. You go, I will give up all the things because I want you to save my life. One of the things that I loved about Pat and also his full um, team is that, and in in my um, research since then and in in speaking with um, other people who have had anal cancer in the treatment that I had, is they um, focused part of my preparation for getting ready for for all of this treatment was they actually spoke to me about things like vaginal atrophy. If you're going to blast someone's pelvic area with 30 doses of radiation, what can happen and and what will happen is your vagina basically will start to stricture shut. So 
this is the same um, treatment that have that people have been receiving for anal cancer for 30 years, and that's because it works. So it's a good mm. thing. But what it also means is that for 30 years, people have been dealing with horrific side effects without any real approach to um, avoiding those side effects because they sort of figure like, well, women are going to be not able to have sex and certainly not able to have enjoyable sex. At least they'll be alive. And, and I really appreciated that I had a um, treatment team that just thought that that was bullshit. So, you know, in that same process of understanding where I had to park for my radiation treatment and um, what creams I could use when the burn started to kick in, Tom and I were also given a session with a nurse where she showed us all of the different vaginal dilators and talked to us about, you know, what I needed to do to, um, to stop some of those worst side effects from occurring. It just doesn't end, does it? It's like you're dealing with one thing over there and then that's causing all these other things. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's a, I think that's a lot for a woman to deal with at any age, but at such a young age to be told that you're essentially going to have an early onset of menopause and suddenly you're dealing with that. Holy hell. So did you, did you then actually kind of experience the full effects of of like classic menopause like did you go through all of those things I did, um, but only recently so um right so after treatment yeah well after treatment so they right. actually don't even test you for menopause until about 18 months after your last period because it can take that long particularly if you're young ish like me 36 there was a small chance that i thought maybe my ovaries would kick back in and, mm. and start doing their thing but let's be honest my ovaries were never really working in great order anyway so I was not surprised when um, about 18 months after diagnosis, I started to really, um, you know, experience those cliched um, menopausal symptoms, yeah. terrible hot flushes, really badly interrupted sleep, zero sex drive, you know, weight gain and weight gain in places that my entire body had like um, shape shifted into a weird um, like fat bellied zero asked lady which was it was like someone had lifted off my head and put it on someone else's <laughs> body it was terrible it was oh terrible it was almost worse than cancer um, <laughs> oh. um and just like, it was like the one two three punch thing i was like oh fucking hell really like like this oh shit when does it end we done are we done i think we're done yeah. um but i went and saw a um uh, endocrinologist at the beginning of this year, um, sort of in January 2020. And it's funny, I think women, particularly um, tough women, don't realise that they're worried about something until someone is nice to them about it. <laughs> and huh. it wasn't until I went and saw her and she was amazing and she basically went, this is bullshit. What, you think that you should be dealing with menopause at 38 and you think this is your lot for the next 30 years? Fuck that. Like, she was amazing. Um, and she gave me, um, basically, she started me on hormone replacement therapy. And, and I got home that night and I just wept with Tom. I just thought, I just said to him, I thought this was it. I thought, I thought this was my lot to bear. And I just had to suck it up and not whinge about it because I didn't have cancer anymore. But instead, I don't have to do that, you know. And it's sad that I'm never going to have any more kids, but it's... Um, it's a dance art better than the alternative. Mm. So I'm knocking on wood. Are you in remission? Are I'm you... not. 
No, I thought it was. Um, it was right. a bit like, um, you know, when you think that you're a size 12 and then you go to the shop and you put the clothes. Oh, damn. Clothes. Damn those numbers. Yeah, I no. mean nothing. So I really thought I had my, um, I had my, my two-year PET scan. I thought it was my two-year PET scan earlier this year and it was clear, which is excellent news. Excellent. Great want. news. But uh, they want to give me another one in a year's time. Anal cancer, like I said, it's a slow-moving cancer and um even though I had what's known as stage 3B cancer, um, stage 3 anal cancer is different to stage 3 bowel or stage 3 breast, you know. So they all go in different ways. With my particular cancer at the stage that I was diagnosed and the treatment that I got, they would like to see me have two years of clear PET scans and then it's remission, whereas for some cancers it's five years. Yeah, it's different for all cancers, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so um, it's look. I'm in a I'm in a wonderful and privileged position where I've not had to date um, any recurrence or relapse, and statistically, um, it will continue that way. But yeah, I mean, I I, I have a tendency to um, really fuck with the statistics, so I'm just mm. sort of bumbling my way from scan to scan and trying to be one of those optimistic spiritual people who don't Google every last symptom. I'm so grateful that you have so openly shared your story because, I, again, the whole purpose of, of me starting this podcast is that I've, I've met incredible women that have experienced some crazy things that just don't get talked about. And it doesn't mean these things aren't happening but it means that perhaps other people aren't getting the support or, you know, still feel, you know, shame or embarrassment or whatever. And so they don't get that treatment that they deserve or that support, however that looks. And so, you know, I think, um, yeah, having people like yourself being so generous with sharing this experience, I think actually, you know, I really believe if you help one other, if you can help one other person, then that's something because the butterfly effect of that is so powerful. But, I mean, gosh, no doubt. I've seen your Insta. I don't. I feel like I'm like I'm totally fangirling. But I just think, yeah, you think you've really oh, changed thank the you. game for young women. Very so thank you. you to say. No, I really appreciate that, and I appreciate um, you bringing a um, non-menstruating woman onto your um, Moxie podcast. <laughs> you know, I mean, like, <laughs> well, I mean, not every not every woman has a period or experiences a period and not everyone who has a period identifies as a woman. Mm. So, you know, I, again, I think these are things that need to be better understood in our society because we're not, we're not a one size fits all. You're right. Um, And early, you know, early onset of menopause does happen and it does happen to, to young women our age. I, um, the one thing I did want to say is, I had um, I had anal cancer, and I still feel really embarrassed and really shy talking about menopause. And that's a whole other story, and that's something I need to write about, I think. But um, I, I I can make jokes about my bum cancer with um, my three male colleagues, and I do on a regular basis, and it freaks them out. But I never say the M word in front of them. So um, do you feel like um, do you feel like society's just not prepped for it? We just don't know how to deal with it. Totally. And also it's... I mean, we should. That's I'm not That's not an excuse. We bloody should. But, yeah, it's like I said, it's not common. People don't know. People just don't understand it. 
No, and also um, it's probably my own hang-ups as well, you know, because it's all interwoven with my own sense of mm. self and sense of being a woman and sense of sexuality and all that sort of thing. Yeah. But it's been, that's why it's sort of really been a privilege to, to chat to you um, and for you to create this sort of safe space for everyone listening and stuff. So It you. is a safe space. Thank you for recognising that and thank you just for being so open. You're welcome. And for keeping us all entertained. Please keep gramming. <laughs> I like wish you nothing but the best and nothing but like, you know, health, health and happiness and lots of Jude Law. Um, but please keep gramming. Thank you, Mia. I promise just for you. Please. <laughs> just I want my own little like my little private. You know how you can set like centre close friends? Yes. <laughs> like anything like super juicy that you're not sure your audience is ready for, I'm ready for. I'm just like prefacing <laughs> by saying I'm down. Like I'm down for whatever. I'll be the guinea pig. If you want to test out any content. Yeah. Is this too much? Nah. I feel like I'm kind of like I've been in this, I guess, industry, personal care for like 15 years now. And I I feel like I'm hard to shock. I feel like, please try. It'll be great fun. <laughs> That's a very dangerous <laughs> challenge, but you've said it and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to. I put it out there. I yeah. put it out there. You're coming, you're coming with me to my next colonoscopy. That's it. We're in. Oh, I will be that person. Kid you not. We've just met, but that's fine. Yep. Um, welcome. I'm down. I'm so down, so to speak. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Appropriate use of language. Um, but, yeah, thank you so much for being on Girls Got Moxie. This has been amazing. I hope we can do this again. Uh, and again, thanks for just being so open. To talk about my bits inappropriately with you, Mia. Amazing, and I'd I'd actually love to do, but perhaps a separate ep about the um, the project that you did on Sean Connery as like a seven year old. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I saw that and I was like, yeah, that, that's my kind of woman. Okay, <laughs> very unusual person. <laughs> so funny. Uh, and where can people find you on Insta? Um, I'm under Ms which is very PC, uh, Ella Bella. <laughs> um, so if you search for that with a little underscore at the beginning, because you can tell that I set up my Instagram like five years ago before I even thought about anyone having to find me easily, uh, <laughs> you'll, you'll find Ella Ward and the big pink lips and that's when you'll know you're in the right place. <laughs> yeah, I will, I will add a link in the show notes just to make sure that people can find you. But thank you again so much for your time. This has been amazing. Can't wait to hear about everything that comes next for you and anyway, the things that you're going to do Thank and the hilarity the that best things that's happened in ISO. Oh, that's, that is so generous. You've either had a really boring time in ISO or <laughs> yeah, just, just, just take it. <laughs> I'm going to take it. Look, I'll take what I can get. I'm grabbing that. Thank you. I appreciate it so much. Thanks so much, Ella. This has been amazing. Thank you. Have a good day. Thanks for joining us on today's episode of Girls Got Moxie. If you like what you heard, please do leave us a review. And also don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Stitcher to be notified when the latest episode drops. In the meantime, please do join us on Facebook in the Girls Got Moxie community group where everyone can have a say. Don't forget to check out Overflow on YouTube for a behind-the-scenes glimpse of this potty and to meet today's guest, and also the show notes for links to everything we talked about. Until next time. Yeah.